Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. We had the pleasure of meeting with Lee Grant Irons and his daughter, Morgan Irons, during Season 5 of the Space 3D Podcast. We've invited Lee Grant back this season to continue our discussion. This is Part 2 of our latest interview. Lee Grant Irons is a scientist and engineer with experience in the fields and industries of space plasma and computational physics, nuclear power design and operations, radioactive and hazardous waste management, environmental remediation, and large-scale engineering and construction projects. In this episode, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers begin to delve into the foundational elements of pan-cosmorio theory with Lee, who has just published an article on the subject with his daughter, Morgan Irons. Briefly, pan-cosmorio theory draws on ecological thermodynamics theory and the methodology of abductive reasoning to consider the consequences of humans leaving Earth's life-sustaining regenerative systems behind. The paper argues that human growth beyond Earth will be limited by the absence of these systems and the implications of leaving them behind. While this episode ends on what might be perceived as a bit of a pessimistic tone regarding the future of space settlement, we promise that there is a more positive message when we air part three of our interviews, so make sure to tune into that. Maybe we can turn our attention now to the article that's pending publication. That article specifically is entitled Pan Cosmorio or World Limit Theory of the Sustainability of Human Migration and Settlement in Space. That's a real mouthful. Yes. (laughs) Um, And uh, maybe to just get started in learning more about the discussion of this article, what is Pan Cosmorio Theory? Right, so pan-cosmorio is a protologism. It's an invented word made up of Greek root words. Pan meaning all, cosmo meaning, or cosmos meaning world, and oreo meaning limit. So it's a pan-cosmorio theory is a theory that establishes limits to the human world or to any world that you might be defining. In this case, it's we're talking about whether the limits of being able to sustain a human society um, on and beyond the earth and how far out from earth does that limit extend? Okay. Now in simplest terms for our audience, what I took away as your basic tenant poses, you know, whether human space settlement is even feasible unless we can create an ecosphere that's like earth. You know, what goes into the creation of that like-Earth ecosphere? And do you really think it's even possible? Right, right. So like-Earth means what we, what we do in the theory um, is we note that there, there's a basal part of this ecos- ecosphere. We don't use the words natural and artificial because uh, we, we don't want to suggest a human externalism or human supernaturalism to the rest of nature. Humans are a part of nature. So we use the terms basal to talk about the evolved ecosphere 
that humans evolved in as hunter-gatherers, okay? That's the basal part. The augmentational part is then what humans have done to Earth beyond their capability to be hunter-gatherers. So, for example, agriculture is an augmentational aspect of the ecosphere. It's a human augmentation to the ecosphere to take what, what is available in the ecosphere and enhance it. So those are the two terms we use, basal and augmentational. And what we say is for the basal elements of the ecosphere, what is required is something we call gravitational dissipating structures. And then there's a power and area requirement, which together make up a capacity. And then there's something called network vitality and functional diversity, which makes up organization. So those things, those three things together, the gravitational dissipating structures, which are a self-restoring order, and then the power and area, which are the capacity, and the network vitality and the functional diversity are the organization. Those three things, self-restoring order, capacity, and organization make up the basal ecosphere. And what we say is that you need to have that basal ecosphere to be able to support an augmentational ecosphere, which is basically the human civilization part, right? And so if you attempt to go into space to establish human civilization in space, and you don't have a basal ecosphere similar to Earth to support your civilization, your civilization is not going to be sustainable. So, you know, the immediate thing that I went to in reading this was, I'm not sure whether colonization of Mars is feasible unless you have terraforming to basically make a like Earth structure right. or environment. Right, um, and, and, and there's been a lot of conversation about terraforming. I think everybody agrees that a certain amount of terraforming would be required for Mars. That's, I think that's the way futurists and, and scientists have been who, who think about that problem. But what we're saying is, fundamentally, initially to start off with, you're not going to terraform anything to be anywhere close to the, to the functional capability of Earth unless you have the gravitational dissipating structures that Earth has. So gravitational dissipating structures are the cycles that Earth naturally generated as a result of being a gravity well with full solar insulative power pouring down on it. So what happens is that when Earth evolved and it had just a bunch of heavy elements in space that were from previous star activity, those elements coalesced by the force of gravity and, and collapsed to form this lithosphere called Earth. And that gravitational force from a physics perspective is, is a conservative force. And in layman speak, all conservative means is that something that goes up, say, high above a gravity well, say, high in altitude, when it falls again, it has the same amount of energy that is contained in that gravity field as when it was initially lifted up. So the point is that energy in a gravity field, any energy 
that is generated as a result of interaction of matter with the gravity field of Earth, that energy is conserved. And so as a result of that, when you have, say, the ocean, and you have sun pouring down on the ocean and evaporating water, right, that evaporated water is going to be begin to rise through the air. And as it rises through the air, that rising action is a result of buoyancy. And the buoyancy is a result of the gradient of air pressure, where you have higher air pressure near the ground and lower air pressure near space. It's that gradient of air pressure that causes that evaporated water to rise. That gradient of air pressure is a result of gravity. It wouldn't be there if we didn't have gravity. And that water rises as a result of, of being evaporated by heat from the sun. And then when it gets up high into the atmosphere, it's going to give off that heat. That heat's going to be dissipated into space, and the water will condense, and it will fall again as a result of gravity, returning back to its point of origin where it can start that same cycle over. And the dissipating structure, the, the gravitational dissipating structure that we're talking about there is a water cycle. Yeah, water cycle, weather, yeah. Right, and, and the weather patterns, right? And the thing is that gravity never wears down. You cannot deplete gravity because it is a conservative force. And because you can't deplete gravity, and because the solar power is coming from the sun for millions and billions of years, right, that this, these cycles just go on and on and on and on, and they create what is called order. So when, when the calculations are done of entropy of these systems, we find that this order that builds up on Earth as a result of the collapse of all of these elements into this lithosphere called Earth, and then the generation of these natural cycles, these water cycles and these air cycles, and the cycles of, of the liquid core in Earth that is generating the, the magnetosphere of Earth, and then also the latent heat of formation of Earth when it collapsed and all the heat that it generated, that latent heat has continued to be given off and it, it keeps our lithosphere close to the surface at around you know 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. All of those things are, are dissipating structures of energy that are that are basically ongoing, continuous. They're always there, and they're self-restoring. Those things are there regardless of what humans do, and humans benefit from them, and the entire ecosphere of Earth benefits from them. And in fact, the entire ecosphere of Earth has evolved on top of those, if you will. It has, it has evolved with those things supporting it, and therefore, life on Earth has actually become dependent upon, evolutionarily dependent upon, these gravitational dissipating structures. So now, when you talk about going somewhere like Mars, okay, it has a third of the gravity of Earth. So it doesn't have the 1G that Earth has. So because it has less gravity, and because it has half the amount of solar insulation that Earth has, you don't have the, the ability to get the same level of gravitational dissipating structures on Mars as what you have on Earth. And so if you take life from Earth and try to transplant it to Mars, 
without those same gravitational dissipating structures, you don't have the same support system. And so you're not going to get the same results from that life. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to be sustainable. And the question is, can it evolve or adapt fast enough before it dies? Right. And that's something we don't know. We don't know how fast things can evolve. We don't, we do know things can evolve, but we just don't know how fast. So the point is that you, it can't be sustainable in a way that would continue to look like earth. Definitely. And the fact of the matter is that humans depend upon those earth systems for our own evolutionary advancement. Um, and, and we see when, when, when the human body leaves earth's gravity well, and gets into a free fall, it, well, it's still in Earth's gravity well, but it gets into a free fall situation in orbit around Earth. So free fall means that you don't feel an apparent weight and you don't feel an apparent centrifugal force as a result of your rotation around Earth. You don't feel any of that. And so as a result, you don't have any differential pressure in your body because there's no apparent weight and apparent centrifugal force acting on you body doesn't function the way it's supposed to function because your body is used to having a differential pressure through it that your heart works against, that your autonomic nervous system is familiar with controlling. I'm not aware of any research that tells us whether the goodness of gravity is a straight line or, you know, a curve that like half a G would be enough or, you know, a third of a G in case of Mars or whether, you know, it's, it's not good until you get to point eight or something like that. I've never heard any sort of research right. or anything along those lines. I think that was something that, that was proposed with the centrifuge that was supposed to be in the Japanese module on the space station. It unfortunately got canceled, I think, around 2008. Right. But I think they were, they were going to be looking at, <clears throat> I think, hypogravity or partial gravity simulations, at least, with a you know, with a centrifugation. Yeah, with a mouse model or something. Yeah, and I also recall years ago, I heard a lecture by a guy, if I recall, he was doing research with um, some type of research simulating like gastric absorption. And I don't recall if this was actual work that he was doing in some sort of altered gravitational field, either, you know, on a on the vomit comet or something like that. I think this was theoretical, but he was talking about, yeah, what, what level of, what minimal level of gravitational field is necessary to still have normal uh, drug absorption, interestingly enough. Right, right. Yeah. And so the point is that we don't have research that indicates whether humans can live with their bodies functioning properly at less than one G. What we do have is a science that's been developed over the last hundred years uh, called ecological thermodynamics. And what ecological thermodynamics says is that the function of, of these natural biotic forms in the ecosystem that they're in is dependent upon the exergy buildup within the ecosystem. So exergy is the form of energy that is stored in the ecosystem. So one example of this is fossil fuel, right? You dig up fossil fuel from the ground, there's a, that's a bunch of energy, right? That's basically the stored exergy of past suns, right? As opposed to the active living exergy of today's sun. 
So you look in the ecosystem, you look at all the plant life, you look at the, the, the water cycle and the weather and, and all this motion and all this movement and all this growth and all this energy, that, that's called exergy. And there's an amount of it that exists in its stored form. So you say you look at a plant growing, you can measure the amount of exergy in that plant that, that is actually stored energy that's in that plant. And then there's an amount of exergy that, that, that's, that's active, it's moving, it's called through flow. And so this is how exergy, starting with the sun and starting with, with other places where energy comes from, like, like the latent heat of formation, of earth and, and the heating of the ground. You look at all these energy sources, but it's mostly coming from the sun. The energy enter, enters the ecosphere there, and then it starts moving through the ecosphere, through the bacteria and through the plants and through the animals and through the, the, the biogeochemical cycles and the geophysical cycles and the biochemistry. And what we can say is we can look at these ecosystems and we can and we can measure the amount of exergy in what we see to be sustainable ecosystems on earth and we can measure things like i was talking before about the organization that we see and i was talking about how organization is measured in terms of what we call network vitality and functional diversity and there are things that you can measure in the ecosystem. You can measure the network, evaluate the network in, in an ecosystem, and you can look at its effective connectivity of the network. You can look at the effective number of roles of the network. These are, these are values that we talk about in the theory and that have all been developed in this, in this theory of ecological thermodynamics. And you, look in, you can look at those and you can say, oh, sure enough, a sustainable ecosystem has a window of vitality that it fits in which means it has, an, it has an effective connectivity between the value of one and three, and it has an effective number of roles between the values of two and 4.5. That's a window of vitality. And you can look at it and you can say, oh, and, and a sustainable ecosystem has a functional diversity where the total capacity, so this is all the through flow of energy going through the ecosystem, through all the network connections in the ecosystem. You know, when one animal eats another animal, energy moves through the ecosystem, right? When a plant decays and its energy goes back in the soil and the bacteria starts eating that and breaking down those things, that's moving of exergy. So you, look, you can look at all these movements of, of exergy throughout this entire network and you can say that total capacity, there's a balance of that capacity where 40% of it needs to go through the window of vitality. So this, this effective network that's made up of basically three links per node and has an effective number of flows of up to four and a half, that's the number of nodes it passes through. 40% of the capacity is going through that window of vitality and 60% of it is going through everything else. So the vast amount of biodiversity and other forms that energy passes through in the ecosystem quantity wise only gets 60% of the capacity and what I would call an oligopoly <laughs> of the ecosystem gets 40% of the capacity. And that turns out to be a sustainable ecosystem. So you can look at that and now you can say, okay, 
we can see what sustainable ecosystem is, what that means. We can define it in an earth context. And we can see that humans have built an augmentational ecosystem network that fundamentally is modeled on our basal ecosystem. We network things the same way nature networks them. And you can look around, you can say, well, what's a network? Well, a network is, you know, how you go from seed to farm to plants growing to, to food being harvested to food being shipped you know, to market and then sold in the market and then it comes to your home and you eat it, right? That That's a network, right? Humans network things the same way nature networks them. So you can look at the, the human augmentational network and you can say, what is sustainable about that? How do we achieve sustainability of that? And you can see that the sustainability of the human network is dependent upon not taking so much exergy out of the basal network that you destroy your basal network. And we can see on Earth in real situations when we take too much exergy out of the basal ecosphere network, we burn it out, we deplete it, we cause species to go extinct, we cause resources to be depleted, and we can see in areas where that happens, the human population also ceases to be sustainable. And we see in history, you can see societies that have collapsed as a result of their local ecosphere collapsing. You know, the first thing that comes to mind to me is the Dust Bowl. Right. Yeah. And, and if the humans are mobile, they can move out of the area that's collapsed so they can go and get sustained somewhere else. But for humans that are trapped on an island, you know, and they can't escape, they, they have problems. Yeah. So Easter Island is an example of that. And I know Easter Island is a big debate about, you know, well, was it colonization that, that ruined that human society? Or was it just natural catastrophe that was going to happen anyway? Or was it the local human population that overconsumed their their island and and that was the problem and that's why the society collapsed? Well, frankly, it doesn't matter whether it was one of those or all three of them or some proportion of them they still that caused it. They <laughs> yeah. were they are all forms of disruption, whether it's a natural disaster that occurs or whether it's you overconsuming your local ecosystem or whether it's another human society came in and they invaded you and they enslaved you and they robbed your island. Those are all forms of disruption. The fact of the matter is that if you're in a sustainable situation, then you're supposed to be able to evolve out of disruption. And we do see situations where that happens. So you, we have this hurricane that just hit Florida, right? Yeah. And it just completely wiped out the coastline the human aug- the human augmentational network was just wiped off the off the face of the earth and i don't mean to laugh cuz there's a lot of human suffering there but just not not decimated annihilated the, the human augmentational system nature was also greatly affected but guess what nature is going to regrow it's, life it, finds it, a way <laughs> yeah well will recover from that what has a hard time of recovering is the human augmentational system and 
And if you were an ancient society that didn't have the rest of the global economy to help you recover, you're gone. You just you just ceased to exist. Um, well, this is you know, it seems like this is a very it's a, it's a very pragmatic and realistic theory, but it's also somewhat depressing for those who are saying, well, wait a minute, you're telling me that no matter how much I aspire to want to colonize another planet, it's just not going to be possible because we can never completely create an Earth-like environment. Or as uh, a gentleman I've I've spoken to previously (laughs) about the health effects of spaceflight describes it, we just don't have the gravity prescription. Then, you know, my crazy mind starts to go into some really weird sci-fi scenarios thinking, okay, well, maybe it's going to come down to if we really want to have human settlement, maybe it's going to require transferring our consciousness of adults to AIs, to robots, that will then initially form the colony, then bring maybe embryos from Earth and grow them in you know, artificial wombs on that planet. So then they are adapted to that environment. So then you don't have to worry about the 1G prescription anymore. Those embryos are now growing up in whatever that new ecosystem is with its own characteristics. Transhumanism is, is one angle, right? Fundamentally, whatever technology that you develop, you're still developing that technology based upon the fact that as you're developing that technology, Earth is providing for your ability to breathe. You don't have to do it. So now you go out into space and you're going to try and act the same way in space, the same activities in space as you have on Earth. Well, if you don't have a basal ecosphere providing you with a natural ability to breathe, that you don't even have to think about because the ecosphere takes care of it for you, well, then you have to focus part of your energy on maintaining your oxygen source. And when you look at the amount of effort and infrastructure that goes into doing something just as simple as only generating the oxygen that you need to breathe, that if you're doing it artificially, so to speak, if you're doing it with technology, which we call augmentationally, you still have to have that whole thing supported by a basal ecosphere. All of the natural resources that you're getting to manufacture that technology to maintain it has to come from somewhere, right? It's just not, well, I have the ability to have this technology. Well, you got to have the resources to continue to make the technology, to continue to make the spare parts and the consumables that you need for the technology to operate, to replace the technology when it wears out and breaks down, right? And to replace it with new technology when it goes obsolete, right? Obsolescence is a huge problem especially that we're having today with everything going so highly digital. So you still got to have that, that basal ecosphere. So even if you go into transhumanism and, and you think about all these ideas about, well, how, you know, all of that is still fundamentally augmentational. And, and unless it becomes a natural part of human evolution, 
where where it occurs naturally as a result of a self-restoring order of a basal ecosphere that that causes it to happen by universal law unless you have that backing you up one disruption can take you out and there's no guarantees of recovery there you look at earth everything that has gone through for hundreds of millions of years and you know heck it survived this asteroid hit that took out all of the large animals on the planet all of the dinosaurs right all well all the dinosaurs were taken out but did earth survive yeah it it just grew back it grew back a different way but it grew back right well sure humans go out and they go through some kind of large catastrophe and wherever they are is going to grow back in some way, but humans won't necessarily survive it. So it all comes down to, we're talking about human sustainability, right? What is it going to take for humans to be able to survive and move forward out into space? And as I, as I reviewed with you, ecological thermodynamics theory, everything sustainable on Earth is, is based upon this basal ecosphere. And, and the human sustainability is based upon that, that exergy and that, that through flow being there. Don't miss the conclusion of our discussion on pan-cosmorio theory with Lee Grant Irons. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.